the Phenomenalist podcast, an open access project in parallel of the Phenomenalist magazine. Today, Diasporic Archives versus Colonial Archives with Jacqueline Hong Nguyen. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Jacqueline Wang Nguyen, uh, who is a visual artist uh, from uh, Côte des Neiges, Montréal, in um, Tiotake uh, unceded territory. Uh, she's currently based in Stockholm and um, she's a, a PhD candidate. Uh, and we're going to talk specifically about her art practice today. Uh, hello, Jacqueline. Hi. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with me uh, today. I, you're currently in Paris, which is uh, which is great. Uh, I've been I've been meaning to do to have this conversation, uh, this uh, this podcast with you for quite a long time now. Um, and so today we will talk specifically about uh, your work in relation to the archive, which is most of your work, uh, especially in, in, uh, in relationship to, to colonialism. And um, uh, it might be a little bit boring to do it this way, but uh, I wanted to maybe start with, a, uh, to start maybe chronologically and talk about a project you, did, you started five years ago, uh, entitled The Making of an Archive. Uh, that, uh, I mean, you'll tell us more about that, but that basically consists in, um, in asking... Uh, in considering family photos as a as a diasporic archive in the context of uh, in the context of Canada, you you even have a, well you'll you'll tell us about your modus operandi so to speak, um, but yeah, could you please talk about both uh, what this project is about and what it means for the way you interpret the archive? Good morning, Leopold. What a pleasure to be here in your studio, uh, your office of the Funambulist. Um, yeah, I guess the Making Archive, for me to be able to talk about it, I need to step back a few years back in, in my practice and actually discuss uh, or contextualize the previous work that I made in order to come, come to uh, the Making Archive. So it's a, a journey where a lot of my work somehow ties in questions in previous works and somehow lead to the making of a new work. And while making these new work new questions arise that lead me to the production of other works. So there's this kind of chain of effect that happens. So in 2012, I produced uh, an installation titled Space Fiction in the Archives, which basically looks at uh, a monument that was built in Canada in 1967. Let me know if you feel that I'm off track here. Not but... at all. <clears throat> I, I doubt you ever will be, so go ahead. <laughs> And so in 1967, um, most of you uh, listeners, I'm not sure if you understand the Canadian context, um, Canada was celebrating its 100th anniversary. So it was a year of euphoria. Most people perhaps remember the uh, expo uh, that took place in Montreal, Expo 67, <clears throat> where you could find the Buckminster Fuller's Geocetic Dome. Uh, it was very euphoric, celebratory. Uh, but not only Montreal was the host of the main exhibition, but the rest of the country was also celebrating in different capacities. 
And so you have this small town in the middle of the Albertan prairies named St. Paul, uh, which had a population of about 3,500 inhabitants, was baptized the Centennial Star for the quality, originality, and number of projects that they initiated that year in 1967 as different ways to celebrate. And so this distinction uh, made me to wonder what did St. Paul do that was so magical? Of course, they had hundreds of projects, but their main contribution was the building of the world's first UFO landing pad. And so why would a small town of this size would want to invite uh, UFOs to come and land? Did they have UFO sightings the year prior? Did they feel this need to actually build a structure that would respond to a specific need of the locality? I did numbers of interviews and everybody confirmed that no, no sightings actually occurred. So it was through conversations that I came to realize that it was the symbolic gesture of inviting whoever from wherever to come and land in Canada. On and so, colonial land. <laughs> yes, exactly. Unceded <laughs> territory. And so basically, uh, it led me to look into immigration policies, and 67 was somehow the, the turning point in immigration policy in Canada. So the year prior, immigration policy um, system was m much more based on uh, a white colonial, white European settlers uh, paradigm where mostly Northern Europeans were invited to come and establish themselves in Canada. 67 was the implementation of a new system that it's called the point-based system that is still used today and basically what made Canada known as being multicultural. And so this turning point of the alien, not only out of space creatures coming and landing, but also alien as immigrants, became this focal point in how to look this monument, the emergence of state policy multiculturalism. So how does how can we think of multiculturalism as embedded in a white colonial settlers power structure, basically? And so to make this work, it led me to do a lot of research in archives, different archives. Uh, I had the chance to uh, work on local archives of uh, residents of St. Paul. I accessed amazing uh, Super 8 uh, films from the time, the inauguration of the UFO landing pad. I had the chance to work in the Historical Museum of St. Paul. Uh, but then I also did uh, research in the CBC archives and also uh, the Library and Archives Canada in Ottawa. And also the NFB and other archives more uh, state-run or nationally-run. And to my great surprise... When I came and tried to look at what this multiculturalism is supposed to look like, uh, I encountered a black hole. It just—it was just so difficult to find what does multiculturalism look like, although the country prides itself to be multicultural. And so with this uh, difficulty of frustration in the archives and realizing that it's mostly white people that are remembered in the Canadian archives, it led me to think, well... What do we have? How, do, how would I think of multiculturalism? And so while making this work, I came across a photo album of my dad when he had just arrived in Canada on the cusp of 73, 74 from Vietnam. The country was still in war. And what we can see in these pictures was actually my dad that is highly involved with the student community at Polytechnique, so the engineering school of Montreal, and uh, he's organizing dinners, events, uh, camping trips, uh, and even we see him and his friends uh, protesting in front of the Canadian Parliament. 
And so for me, that was really the shifting point to think of immigrant bodies that have political agency and manifest and act upon it on a, polit on a public space. And so for me, those images were um, really instrumental to kind of imagine different bodies that are active, engage and out, out there and acting upon it somehow and being socially organized. And then there's also this sense of care that is involved within these communities. How do we care of each other? How do we make sure that the commu community thrives or happy uh, are doing events that are fun? So there's both in order to be bodies that are out and protesting, you need also forms of cares within within the community to support itself. So these two aspects were instrumental and basically uh, in collaboration and partnership with Gendai Gallery in Toronto and Grunt Gallery in Vancouver, uh, we've pushed this idea of the Making Archive and imagining all these families, um, people who have come to Canada in different, for different reasons basically, but have a history of migration, have photo albums that are to my, to my eyes, forms of historical documents that documents how they care for their own communities, but also how they are engaged publicly uh, or in the public space or socially engaged in different ways. What, what's fascinating about that as well is uh, how uh, in the context, for example, of the Vietnamese community in, in, uh, in North America is would be showing, showing these kind of photos is also a way um, to break with uh to break with the image of like uh, of the the um, obligatory uh, behavior of the refugee as being like a, a grateful uh disciplined uh, uh refugee in the way that uh Nguyen uh, is uh, has been uh, theorizing that uh, through her books the gift of freedom and um and this is this is usually not the way that multiculturalism would want to show itself right it's like it's it would not be uh, it prefers like nice photos of uh, of uh, of people being happy in the land that uh, that they reached after uh, after what uh, after a, cer a certain point of their life is that is that is that part of the project do you think yeah so this the the making archive coincides with uh, gendai galleries um i think it was a three-year-long project titled the model minority so basically reflecting on many of the aspects that you're raising this idea of the thankful immigrant the thankful uh, citizen that comes from elsewhere that who does a nine-to-five job pay taxes is docile thankful care for his or her family only and basically uh, has a prosperous life and retires kindly at the end of his or her life, basically. And so reflecting particularly within the Asian community where this is such a prevalent stigma of being a model minority, where actually Asians are often seen as being docile, that they're mostly concerned with their own business and aren't engaged politically in different ways or uh, militant or activist or um, uh, informed politically. So it was very much part of this uh, three-year-long program to reflect and, and be critical of what this model minority and how harmful it is as a concept that is being applied and, and utilized against certain type of, of bodies, basically. And so uh, still... Still, during this project, you you have developed a, a sort of uh, 
process through which uh, other members of uh, other uh, non-European diasporas in uh, in Canada could sort of uh, um, insert themselves within the within this sort of national national archive. Could you could you tell us about this? Yeah, so I mean, the project works very much in, in partnership with different local, so far I've worked with uh, galleries or artist-run centers, but um, spaces who are un- engaged locally with the commu- the existing community. So Gendai is originally an Asian-Canadian uh, gallery um, that, I mean, their questions is much broader than the Asian-Canadian um, community, but that's where they come from, and Grunt Gallery is also extremely engaged with um, the queer and um, different local communities existing around uh, Mont Pleasant in Vancouver. And this project also further moved to Sweden with uh, Grafikenshus in Södertälje, which is one of the most kind of immigrant populated uh, city in or borough in, in Sweden. And so in, in partnership with these institutions, our spaces, then we um, develop uh, events or reach out to different communities. And then we have um, these digitizing stations that function either as events or that we go directly to individuals, houses and reach out to them. And then there's a trailer. Yeah, (laughs) a camping trailer, a mobile unit. Yes, (laughs) that can also come to you if (laughs) you're far away (laughs) and so basically yeah we have a scanner uh, so we scan the photographs Uh, we do interviews in order to contextualize these images uh, how they in which context they appear what we see uh, who are the individuals uh, and and to have a narrative that is attached to the image and so basically at the end of the day we return all the original documents to the donor uh, and also a digital copy to the donor, uh, and then we keep we keep only digital files basically. So the donor goes back home with their material, and then in the meantime we're doing this collecting practice, um, yeah, collecting process. Um, so so far we've been talking about one type of archive, which is an archive of um, of uh, that tend to follow a displacement, a displacement that was um, that has various degrees of uh, voluntariness but that usually is is not is not necessarily uh, uh, a very uh, uh, that sometimes can be a sort of a form of forced displacement and uh, on the other hand you you've been looking at an, an, an at almost the exact opposite type of archive which is the archive of absolutely voluntarily voluntary uh, uh, displacement of uh, Europeans to the world uh, uh, obviously, through through, colon, through through colonialism, but also uh, also through tourism as as a sort of form of sort of neo colonial form of producing an archive through this sort of like overflowing of uh, of photos uh, of of the world through the European gaze. Could you tell us about this part of your of your work? Yes. Um, So basically, that was part of my master's project. So that feels very far away. (laughs) But um, in in a way, I think that my master's degree were really a turning point for me to kind of develop uh, new methods. And and I think it also made me much closer to um, 
the questions of the colonial bodies and and also displacements and and um, the white colonial settler society or most of the Western world, basically in which I grew up. The work study the Lonely Planet was part of my master's degree um, project that I um, culminated into, and so basically uh, in this project, I think the role of the tourist um, was somehow, um, at the time how I understood it, was very much embedded in some of the writings by Dean McCannell. Uh, So he writes in The Tourist, A New Theory of the Leisure Class in 1976. Uh, He says that what begins as a proper activity of a hero, for example, Alexander the Great, develops into the goal of a socially organized group that could be understood as the Crusaders, and then into the status marker of an entire social class, the grand tour of the British gentlemen, where we understand a lot of the colonial legacy comes from, um, and then eventually becoming universal experience, which we know today as being the tourist. So tourism is very much embedded, according to McCannell, and how I understood the Lonely Planet as being part of the the crumbles or the legacies of a certain colonial project and yeah mm. Cr- crumbles would maybe imply that colonialism is destroyed which <laughs> <laughs> no it's still very much present but as i think it's fractured in different ways and manifests itself in in different uh, aspects in different ways uh, rather than i think this grand colonial project of the empire as we could understand it a century ago or so yeah so but but so um this this uh, this uh, crumbles of colonialism is very much productive of of an archive in itself. So, how do you how do you perceive it in relation to to your work on the archive? Yeah, I think my encounter with more specifically colonial archives um, was uh, when I was luckily selected as one of the artists in residence at the Museum of Ethnography in Stockholm. So this residency, which is part of a larger European project titled Switch, um, which is uh, 10 museums in Europe that were mandated or had the opportunity to invite uh, an artist in residence to work with their collection. So Stockholm was being one of them. So um, they had an open call, I submitted a proposal, and luckily was selected. So I had full access to the museum, to the backstage of the museum, all the resources, all the staff there. I went to all their coffee breaks and hung out with the entire staff and just chit-chatted about everything and heard just, yeah, their daily lives, what they do, but also um, their frustrations with the institution and so on and so forth. So so that moment was definitely uh, a particular encounter, which I think gives a a much better sense of the the behind-the-scenes of the museum and how it functions, and also being the custodian of a colonial project. And and so, yeah, that was really interesting. Mm. Yeah, and we, we'll get to it in, uh, in just a moment through the, through the exhibitions that you, you build up from, from this uh, experience uh, called Black Atlas. But um, before we do so, I think um, I sort of wanted to take that chance to perhaps... Um, Sort of almost almost built on a, on a conversation you and I have already already started uh, in particular in Stockholm uh, the, earlier this year, in relation to the notions of colonial continuum, um, and um, 
And I think some of the fr some of the sentences that you use to present your work are extremely compelling in the way that they talk about colonialism uh, re relationally, like through through the through a set of relations. And I I'm picking up two sentences in particular. Uh, the the main sentence of uh, of your of your exhibition Black Atlas, which is how did the world come to Europe, and uh, the name of a workshop you did, which is uh, you are here because they were there, which uh, paraphrase uh, paraphrases throughout all, uh, uh, I am here because you were there. And so, and staying on Stuart Hall, you 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 told me that you have a. Um, well, you did not say it like that, but <laughs> I was going to say a mild obsession for one of the things that he, he for one of the things that uh, he tried to work through, which is uh, that he calls the the umbilic umbilical cord of, uh, um, I mean of of this this I mean the, to to talk about this relation. Uh, it's it's actually a reference I did not manage to find again after you told me. So actually, could you could you tell us more about this whole relation that seems to be really at the core of your work? Yeah, um, I, I I think Stuart Hall was fantastic in in so many aspects, um, but particularly to articulate in a very um, not simplistic but uh, in a very simplified way, he was pointing directly uh, and, and with an e economy of words that I think is just a, an amazing quality to, to have as a, a theorist and thinker to be able to explain the colonial project by um, saying to his fellow <laughs> British compatriots that don't be surprised if you see people of color, particularly from the West Indies, coming and showing up at their doorstep of Great Britain, because this relation was already entertained from the colonial empire, Britain, by having this uh, umbilical cord that was already established with Brits going to certain areas in the world. So it's not surprising that these relationships were established, and therefore afterward these people come to our doorstep and demand to be seen as citizens or have rights, citizenry that is being recognized to them. So um, that has been very much, I mean, much of his ideas have been foundational for me to understand, um, yeah, these sets of relations that are established. And it's, it's not surprising how people move in certain directions. Not surprising, for example, that my dad ended up in the French-speaking part of Canada. He went to French school in Vietnam prior during the war. So, of course, he would go somewhere either to France or within the Francophonie, so the French-speaking world. And so, yeah, so there's these relations that are already established through the colonial project, and therefore people move in certain directions. So, yeah. And also, I, I just love this idea of the, the umbilical cord because of this maternal uh, understanding of how we relate and care and foster relationships with people and so yeah this kind of reproduction of bodies reproduction of labors and reproduction of social relations so i think there's something really productive to th to to think through the maternal body basically mm. hmm. but one of the things that defines the umbilical cord is also a very unidirectionality so to speak like uh how do you how do you think of that uh in in the context of colonialism the... 
Uh, I I would say it's a two way okay. feeding. Um, <laughs> maybe, my, maybe my, biology, my biological knowledge is not that is not that great. <laughs> I think there's definitely a dialogue between, yeah, yeah uh, the, the the body who's uh, fostering and then the body that is being fostered. But there's there's a dialogue, I would say, and a two way relationship that, um, yeah, a coexistence rather than. A, a only feeding maternal body towards um, this foster mm. or yeah this child yeah. Um, but so I mean, jumping to Black Black Atlas specifically, and maybe before even getting into exactly what the exhibition was looking at, um, I think in one of the short videos that was made uh, of you being in in residency in the in the in the Stockholm uh, Ethnographic uh, Museum. You, you. I think you conclude even. I, th I believe it's the last sentence of what you of what you say that you that part of the ambition of this exhibition was to turn the ethnographic gaze back onto itself, and uh, and I think that connects well with what we were just talking about. So could you could you perhaps tell tell us how you did that? Yeah. Um, so basically, how did the world come to Europe uh, was the, the kind of starting point, uh, which uh, I approached Black Atlas, having this extreme privilege of being in the archives of the Museum of Ethnography. My focus was mostly the photographic archives. That's what I wanted to kind of look at. And often, I think... Museums of ethnography are slowly changing their relationship to photography. Often uh, it was seen uh, up until recently photography as being secondary reference material. So material that was seen to support um, documentary information and, and so on and so forth. But I think museums are slowly seeing photography as being objects of value for and um, by themselves. So as primary um material to kind of rely upon and so that was uh, my focus and through looking at uh, the photographic archives stuff that hadn't been digitized yet so a lot of material that, that is not available um, on their online database I had the opportunity to come across not only about different Uh, indigenous groups or the artifacts or objects that they produce and so on and so forth but I was able to access and see um, material how this logistics of material uh, actually took place in order to move them to European museum storage and so this kind of um, frenzy for collecting stuff just to collect stuff um, so that was really for me, um, a turning point in terms of thinking uh, the sheer amount of labor that is needed to bring um, this material here and on which labor did these white explorers rely upon. And so how did the world come to Europe was basically uh, in relationship when I showed Black Atlas in the museum, it was in their permanent collection exhibition. It was next to another one uh, that was titled Mevaden i Kapsäcken in Swedish and translated it would be uh, with the world in your backpack and it's very much this celebratory narrative that you often hear in museums of ethnography where you have this singular explorer that goes throughout the world and just amass stuff and as if you just put it in a kind of lonely planet kind of way you just put it in your backpack and you bring it back to Europe but the reality is that uh, you have sometimes hundred people often men 
thousand of men even that need to transport these objects put into crates. Um, so for me, Black Atlas is very much looking at this labor, this division of labor that is often function um, would often function along the color line. So you would have the white explorer that does cogn cognitive work, so intellectual work that sits in in beautiful office spaces in the museum or colonial houses that are built for them or um, kind of prepared for them. And so sometimes the he's even carried himself. Yes, <laughs> or is being carried by other men so that he doesn't need to walk in the swamps and dirty his white, beautiful white pants. Um, so um, meanwhile, you have um, people of color who are carrying and doing the physical labor of moving stuff around. So you have just in the title itself, black And here I'm referring to black in the kind of 70s, 80s British sense of black, where uh, it points to basically all non-white bodies. So black and people of color in general that uh, were kind of working within the umbrella term of black blackness. And Atlas is referring to the mythological Greek uh, figure that as a burden, has to carry the world on his back. So this idea that the particular type of bodies are carrying um, basically world culture yeah, on their back to bring it to Europe. Um, well, as the, last, as the last part of this conversation, I'd like to talk maybe um, well about two things, I suppose. Uh, one, one is specifically to, to the ethnographic museums themselves and the sort of the sort of moment we're in for them and uh, maybe the moment where Heracles is uh, is uh, sort of uh, accepting to take on the world <laughs> to to make a, to do a little bit of work of labor himself but uh, only to trick back at last to, <laughs> to 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 carry the world again after that but um uh which is which is this idea of like being i mean exactly exactly what what you're describing with like you're uh, being involved in uh, in very much what they what they do what they are about uh, which is to do like the world in your backpack kind of exhibition and then on a, on a, along along that having a sort of self-reflective maybe even self-critical sometimes when it's done well uh, uh, look at, at what they are and what they're about um, um, And trying to, and obviously, I'm I'm slowly leading towards the questions about uh, uh, object restitutions here. But maybe even before getting to it, could you could you maybe comment on uh, on this sort of on this sort of particular moments and those very particular museum uh, uh, are are going through? Because I I I mean, this is something we can see with the Cape Henri here uh, museum. Uh, but uh, I don't necessarily. This is not necessarily something I've been I've been. Uh, Uh, examining in in details, but I, I think you did. Maybe not in details, but at least you're you're, you're a little bit more uh, uh, confronted to this sort of questioning uh, through like talking with curators. And uh, I mean your your book, uh, uh, your book, uh, creating the world that's just about to come out. It uh, has come. It out. has come out. Yes. Sorry. Okay. Uh, uh, is um, is. Uh, Is, is itself like you're being interviewed by curators and there's a dialogue between two curators of ethnographic museum at the end of the book. So could you, could you maybe address that for just a moment? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the residency which I was part of, uh, which was initially like a three-month residency within the museum that gave me full access, and I was working closely with um, the curator uh, of Africa, Michael Barrett, which is one of the person that is in the book and is in conversation with uh, Wayne Modest from the director of the Research Center for Material Culture. And so they both were involved in the SWITCH project. And SWITCH actually stands for Sharing a World of Inclusion, Creativity, and Heritage. And so basically, I think um, these institutions are realizing that they're at a crossing road and need to actually reflect on the fact that much of their collection is constituted of objects that they would say of people out there in the world, these people um, that are from faraway cultures, but the reality is that the reality now is that Europe is constituted of much of these people that they used to call out there in the world, faraway, distant places. So there's a, a re-questioning that is in place in terms of how do they relate to their collection, but more importantly, how, what kind of narrative or how should they rethink this relationship to the collection in 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 relation to their new audience or this shift of audience is not the same audience that they used to have 50 years ago. Um, so they need to rethink uh, what kind of knowledge is ought to be produced from these institutions, how to activate these objects and what kind of narratives um, to be crafted. So the artist comes in, in, in this, I think, intellectual kind of endeavor as to kind of rethink their role within society, which is, of course, a legacy that is very, very problematic. Uh, but in the conversation that you can read in uh, Creating the World, which is published by Athene Press, a lovely, I'm very happy with how it turned out, a beautiful little object. Beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, um, there's fantastic contributions, if I can just plug them in. Uh, there's uh, a text by Ariel Azoulay, Osa Barati Larson, Vincent Normand, Gabriel Moser, and this conversation, yeah, between Michael Barrett and Wayne Modest, and also myself in conversation with Ulrika Flink and my co editor, Rado Istok. But to come back to this conversation between Michael and Wayne, um, I think there's uh, moments where uh, there's great frustrations with the Museum of Ethnography and the legacy um, that we're burdened with. But I think Wayne and Michael still feel that there's something to be learned from um, these museums, that there's still hope or something that can be uh, initially, I would say, to be unlearned first in order to be able to kind of reappropriate the museum in, in productive ways. Um, so I think both of them... Uh, position themselves as uh, they wouldn't want to kind of completely close down the museums of ethnography uh, and just kind of forget about this colonial past. I think it would be more dangerous to actually try to wipe everything uh, and kind of brush it under the carpet as if it didn't exist. Rather, I think we're required to actually have a critical reflection on the legacy and what it has done and how to kind of rethink uh, from what we can learn from these museums actually um but so as a, as a last uh, as a last question i suppose uh i'm wondering what it would mean to for those museums maybe not to disappear but for those museums to be emptied mm. <laughs> in the context of a of a restitution program with 
um, uh, of of those objects with um, uh, as as a as a form of decolonization. I know that your your work maybe for the moment does not fully uh, um, take on on that, but I'm sort of guessing that it will it will probably <laughs> I would not be surprised that it would be part of uh, one of your future projects. So. Could you could you tell us maybe how you envision such a such a sort of process, the decolonizing process specific to those to the massive massive stock of either looted or uh, or stolen or 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 obtained in in colonial conditions objects uh, that uh, those museums have yeah in, in dubious uh, <laughs> context I think it's a, a a complicated but much needed conversation to have. Um, I think the simple answer is yes, let's return everything. Uh, but I, I would want to complexify that question. Uh, what are the motivations for returning these objects? I think there's a desire that, yes, they should return to their source community. That's a way of, of saying it. But I think that analyzing the motivations of the Western institutions should be um, much more discussed as I'm currently feeling that many of the museums who are engaged in restitution uh, is actually a form of colonial diplomacy um, in order to, how to say, um, to kind of buy themselves, uh, buy themselves better relationships with their former colonies in hopes for more kind of uh, economical flourishment in the long run. Uh, and so that's where I feel a little bit... Um, kind of uh, resistant to the idea of um, restitution for the sake of restitution so that uh, countries and institutions can just wash their hands of their wrongdoings. But I think it's a restitution is not, my, understand, my understanding would be not only to return these stuff, but to establish proper relationships for long-term friendship for example. So it's not just, oh, I'm moving back stuff, we're done. Okay, no hard feelings anymore. But actually, um, it's it's centuries of wrongdoings and uh, probably centuries to come of undoing as well. So it's not just by returning objects would be enough. But I think it's it's a relationship that needs to be established. But perhaps hence those emptied, emptied museums that could then be sites of... Uh sites of uh, examination of, of history in what those shelves used to used to, to contain now absolutely but I think it's also I think it's a bit simplistic to say we just return stuff because many of those stuffs have circulated within a colonial colonial context which was amazing at erasing who were the person who created these objects where they actually come from from which context so they exist as objects objects of value but much of the biography of these objects also have been erased along the way because particularly passing through auction houses a lot of this information has been erased as well so where it ought to be returned is not always an easy answer because it disappeared uh, along the process of moving from one museum to another from an explorer to an institution and so on and so forth so I think there's also many objects that have become orphan along the way so yeah i agree most with what you're saying but i think it's a it's, it's a more complicated question mm. and you have, you have a, a piece in, in uh, toronto at the, at the moment do you want to do you want to tell us about it 
Uh, yeah, I well, actually don't know what it is. So. <laughs> um, it's a piece in the making, and this is the first, um, I would say, the first step of its realization. It's titled Untitled and Titled. Um, and basically, I think it connects more with the first part of this conversation that you and I had uh, for this podcast about um, how to think about multiculturalism, multiculturalism being part of a colonial settler's um, power prism. And basically, I did. Uh, it, it comes from a very personal place. Um, so basically, I looked at inv- individuals who have a history of migration, came to the West uh, or have or involved or working within a Western context in some ways and through language, actually, this process of, of translation that uh, also uh, reflect a form of, of power of um, how we understand translation. So basically how we name things. Uh, and for example, Jacqueline is um, not in my passport, is not an official name. Uh, Huang is actually my first name, but Jacqueline was given to me when I started school in order to facilitate my integration. And so um, many of the individuals that I've interviewed also have different reasons as to why they adopted a Western equivalent to their first name uh, in order to kind of function better in the host country that they're living in. And so this research was translated into these uh, lenticular panels that are mounted on uh, moving structures. So lenticulars are these um, prints that you often see in advertising when you have two, three images that are embedded in one. So when you walk in front of it, it creates this animation. So it constantly moves from one image to another. So in the same way, it's very much the viewer up to the viewer where he or she places themselves in front of the structure as to see which, which name appears, basically. So that is meant to be developed into a performance. I'll be working with a choreographer and dancers to kind of activate uh, these structures. Great. Well, uh, Jacqueline Huang. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much again for uh, taking the time this morning uh, um, in uh, those two weeks you're, you're in Paris to be part of the of the Phenomenalist podcast and uh, and best of luck for the for this project thank you thank you so much for having me a pleasure <laughs>